Let me begin here in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes that we may behold the wonderful truths of your word. Help your servant now to bring forth truth with clarity and help your people to respond in worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this summer we are covering the various psalms, uh, and we've entitled the summer series, The Summer in the Psalms. And last week, Luke did a wonderful job of preaching Psalm 110 and reminding us that there is only one God, King Jesus, who is worthy of our worship. And, and we were just, just beholding God and just marveling that the God we worship is worthy to be praised. Well, as we look at, continue looking at various books of the Psalms, you know, it's really a collection of spiritual songs written by various authors, but half of them are written by King David. And, and you know that the theme of Psalms is worship. And it's important to understand this theme of worship because, because the Almighty God does not, and the worship of Almighty God just doesn't happen only on good times. When we read all 150 Psalms, we discover that life's experiences ranges from exuberant praise to depths of despair, from declaring of God's wondrous works to wailing from wicked men all around the authors. And what makes the book of Psalms so attractive is that it captures the human heart at great highs and really great lows of life. A few weeks ago, Pastor Micah asked me to preach on Psalm 13 on lament. And previously, previously, I had mentioned to him that the deacons had recently read a book entitled Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, written by another pastor, Mark Rogop. And reading this book was very instructive in understanding that lament is how we bring our sorrow before God. Did you know that over a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament? And so you may be asking, so what is the meaning? What is the meaning of lament? Lament means great sorrow or expression of grief, sadness. It's it can be a loud cry or sobbing or weeping that is that's just gut-wrenching. Just maybe alone in your room and, and just crying out before God. But it's a response to horrific events such as losses or afflictions or even evil people who seek personal harm. And lament is just that crying out. And to lament, as stated in the Bible, is to turn Godward in crying out to him. But in our modern world, we seem to go to great lengths to avoid pain and sorrow. We seek for instant pain relief, mind-altering substances, or 
We look to entertainment choices to avoid the reality of suffering and affliction. Even much of our modern worship songs in churches throughout our land seeks to emphasize a positive, feel-good vibe. Seldom do we allow us to lament, express sadness, or even contemplate the weariness of living for Christ in a sin-affected world. We always want to remain upbeat. Now, don't get me wrong. I like to remain upbeat. (laughs) But that's not the reality for all of us. One modern theologian stated it well, quote, by excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate, both inside and outside the church. By so doing, it has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of consumerism generated an insipid, trivial, and unrealistically triumphalist Christianity and confirmed its impeccable credentials as a club for the complacent. Close quote. This writer, theologian, also notes that, that what the modern church is communicating to their detriment is that the normative Christian life is one long triumphalist street party in a world of broken individuals. Even now, in this room, there are many here who are facing a season of life where sorrow, sadness, affliction, and pain are your constant companion. It just doesn't go away. Nor does it go away easily. Grief, loss, physical pain, decline, it just besets us to the point that we are tempted to discouragement, depression, and even doubting God's goodness. And so as we gather together as followers of Christ, being honest with our condition is so important. Life isn't always about victory, chance, and testimonies that life is now pain-free. The Psalms bear witness that lament is a prayer in pain that leads to Christ in the God who does reign victorious as our king. John Calvin tells us that, John Calvin, for those who don't know who he is, who he was, is a French theologian and pastor who understood lament. And and he was writing about the commentary on the, the book of Um, Psalms, and he says, quote, I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit here, drawn to the life, all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. In other words, lament psalms helps us to prepare and understand suffering, that suffering by form of hardships, disappointments, and pain, especially, I want you, the next generation, the ones younger than I am, uh, many of you, that 
it's, I, I'm really wanting to um, speak to you because some of you're just not immune to, uh, you're just not aware of that, that type of suffering. But I think of Jesus' words in John 16, 33. He says that these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will, you will have tribulation. But take heart or be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, undoubtedly you will. Because our world all around is filled with the effects of sin. The effects of sadness and sorrow. For many of us, we don't know how to respond when afflictions come our way. When a difficult person enters our life. and seeks to do harm, or when tragedies come unexpectedly. We struggle to come alongside ones who grieve the loss of a loved one, or face a debilitating disease, or are struggling with living through constant pain. And I can't promise you that after this sermon, you'll walk away with all the answers of all the wise to life's pain. I can't. But I do hope that we can look to the scriptures to give us a better understanding of how and whom to go when we are overcome with weeping. So let's read together. Open your copy of God's word to Psalm 13. Psalm 13, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, page 534. And follow along as I read Psalm 13 to the choir master, a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You know, we know the writer of the psalm is King David. But we don't know when or what specific context was he writing. However, when we read the Old Testament and the accounts of David's life, beginning in 1 Samuel 16 onwards through 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, we see that David's life is full of great highs and lows, great victories, slaying Goliath, the victories over the Philistines, to great threats. Saul, King Saul, trying to kill him due to his jealousy. David fleeing among the Philistines, fleeing Saul and living among the Philistines. David later, he rises to prominence as king over Judah and later king of Israel. And yet David's great fall and sin of adultery and murder. David's loss of an infant child. David's son, Absalom, 
turning against him and hunting him down for his life. David experienced betrayal from family, friends, and his people. So his afflictions could have come from many sources. It could have been self-imposed, or he's the victim of evil intentions. And oftentimes, the most painful afflictions are from one's closest to one's heart. I think of David's words in Psalm 55. Take the time sometime to read that and, and just see how even an intimate friends can betray and how painful that affliction is. But this morning, we will look at this song of lament, Psalm 13, in order to prepare our hearts to worship the Lord, even when we suffer deep affliction. You know, this short psalm is divided into three sections. First, a, a prayer of personal pain. You found that the first two verses there. Then the verse three or four, a personal plead for help. And then finally, a personal prayer of praise. Notice that the psalm is personal. As David records his pain and he pleads and he praises using the personal pronoun me or I or my. There are, all, there are other psalms written on behalf of the people of God or a nation. But Psalm 13 is highly personal and intimate. David is communicating to God intimately and we are invited to enter the world of personal pain and see what it looks like. It's raw, it's emotional, it's messy, but it reflects many of our thoughts as well. So as we look there, a prayer of personal pain, you find there in verse one and two, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Four times there, David laments to God in anguish by saying, how long? Literally, it means until when? Or, or until when will it be over? Any of you can relate to that? That first lament David asks is one of just that how long is just, is, it's not just a temporary pain. It appears to be one long painful fight, uh, painful fight to trust God. And the level of intensity tells us that David's suffering deeply distresses him. You know, when David is wondering whether God has forgotten He's saying that it appears that God has not listened to his prayer. Since in other passages, when the scripture states God remembers, it means that God has answered their prayer. But his lament of forgetting there means that God is not answering his prayer immediately. Have you ever found wondering personally whether God has forgotten you? You cry out asking to be delivered from a difficulty or wanting healing or reconciliation. And there appears to be just silence. David is feeling abandoned by God since he is not being heard. 
and it appears endless. Forgotten has the idea of not being remembered anymore, that terrible feeling of aloneness. I think of David writing there in Psalm 31, verse 11 and 12, because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and in an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. David feels, God, you've, have you forgotten me? Anyone understand that? He not only laments on how long God will forget, but how long will God hide? He goes there on the next part of the passage. How long will you hide your face from me? You know, in the scriptures, when God shines his face upon someone, it means that that person is being blessed. But when he hides his face, it's an anthropomorphic expression. It means, you know, just that when God is hiding, he's, he's turning away. He's stating that I'm not the recipient of your blessing. I'm outside of your loving kindness being shown towards me. I think of Job when he asked that same question when he suffered and believed that God was hiding his face. How long will you hide? You know, feeling alone is bad enough, but David is now expressing the feeling of abandonment, and that is one of the most painful experiences of life. Don't have friends. No one cares. If I die, no one will shed a tear. I think of what um, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, a pastor back in London over 100 years ago, he wrote in his commentary, The Treasury of David, and he says, quote, it is not the sharpest, but the longest of trials that we are most in danger of fainting. When Job was accosted with evil things in quick succession, he bore with becoming fortitude. But when he could see no end to his troubles, he sunk under them, close quote. And I think of that, that, it's, that it's those long, painful feelings of abandonment, aloneness, being forgotten and forsaken. So David not only asked, how long will God forget? How long will God hide his face from me? But he goes on continuing on his third lament. How long must I remain discouraged? In other words, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David now asks this third question, basically saying, I'm at my wit's end. I have tried everything within my being and I, I can't figure out what to do. He's saying, I'm so discouraged and down. Nothing I've tried is working to get myself out of this predicament. And his affliction is, is daily. It says all the day, all the time. And it's not physical, but emotional and spiritual, which is often more difficult to bear. David says he has sorrow in my heart, speaking not just on the physical level. It is, is deep. 
David writes in another psalm, in Psalm 6, verse 3, he says, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? He says on verse 6, there in Psalm 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. That's just non-stop pain. So for many, when discouragement sets in, it affects a person's total being. And it's amazing how God has designed us, heart, soul, and mind, that physical, spiritual, and mental or emotional. So David's lament and remaining discouraged, it leads to stating the next obvious point, defeated. How long must I remain defeated? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You know, discouragement easily leads to feeling defeated. I can't win. And this fourth lament points that the source of his lament is from someone who seeks David's demise. As mentioned before, that could have been from many sources. Saul, the Philistines, Absalom, and other and a host of other enemies. But I think of David's writing in Psalm 140, verse 1. He describes his enemy this way. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongues sharp as the serpents and under their lips is the venom of asps. You know, as I mentioned before, perhaps what's more devastating enemy is the one whom you're once close to. David writes in Psalm 55, I alluded to that earlier, but let me read a portion of Psalm 55. In verse two, notes, David cries out, attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. But then he goes on in verse 12, he says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. I think of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. I think of Demas and Alexander who betrayed the Apostle Paul. That pain of betrayal can run deep and they don't easily go away. You know, afflictions and lament can be relentless. It may come in ways, but it comes with a level of intensity that appears like one wave after another. You know, we sung some hymns of the faith. One of my favorite hymns um, is entitled, Our Great Savior, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. And I like how the writer pens this one stanza Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my, of my soul. Friends may fail me. 
foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. You know, these four laments, they generally cover the major griefs that are common to all of us. And yet, what's important to consider is how David is not only crying out, why me, in suffering this personal pain, but he now turns, I mean, he's been turning Godward, but he turns Godward and pleads for help. And and that's a good thing. So David transitions from those first two verses to a personal plead for help. And you find that in verse three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David makes two important requests. And the first one is, remember me. Consider, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. David, when he cries out to God and says, consider, he's saying, look, look intently. It's a personal plea to say, look at my situation personally. And David is crying out, he's crying out to Yahweh, my personal God, oh Lord, my God. And this is so important to note, because David is not just calling or casting his lament to any God or any you know, impersonal God. But David is crying out to the one whom he has a personal relationship, Yahweh. You are the one whom there's a covenantal relationship, a sacred commitment. God is the one who personally set apart David to be the king of Israel in order to bring forth the kingdom of Israel. And so David cries out, remember me before I die. Not because he's concerned about his life, but a bigger concern, God's name and reputation. And that is why David goes on to say, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David is not only asked and pleading, remember me or consider me, but he says, rescue me, answer me. Why? He says there in verse 4, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Not only look, but not, not only God look at me, but, but respond, answer me, please answer me. And David's concerned that his enemies will shout out victory of their God. And he knows that their beliefs oppose God's purposes and God's covenant promises, and God's reputation of a covenant-keeping God. And that is so often the case of the ones who oppose Jesus Christ, or the God of the Bible, and his promises. You see, an enemy of God is one who opposes God's purposes, even when they may believe it is a righteous cause. I think of, I think in the New Testament, I think of Peter, You know, Peter opposing Jesus' words of his imminent death. And Jesus responding strongly in Matthew 16. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's why when God answers David's prayer, 
When he says, consider me, rescue me, and God delivers him, we see the account in the Old Testament there of God's intercession, of God's answering. We find that in 2 Samuel 22. And let me read a portion of that. It says in 2 Samuel 22, in verse 1 it says, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He says in verse 17, God sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from a strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. You see, these two important requests, remember me and rescue me, our personal pleas that still applies us to us today. You turn Godward and say, consider, answer me, remember me, rescue me. But David now transitions from those two verses, three and four, and he transitions from that prayer of personal pain and personal plea for help to a personal prayer of praise. And you find that there in Verse five and six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. There's one little three-letter word that is critical in this passage, and that word is but. That word changes David's perspective. And this word is used in other Psalms of lament. Often it's the word but, or yet, or however. Let me give you examples of that. The same writer, David, he will tell you that in Psalm 22, he says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. David says this in Psalm 31, in verse 12. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I, fear, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I will trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Psalm 71, in verse 10 says, for my enemies speak. This is, these are all David writing these, song, these times of trial. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him and pursue and seize him for there's none to deliver him. And then he says in verse 14 there, Psalm 71, but... I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. In another psalm, in Psalm 86, David writes, but you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious. You know, this word is so critical because it answers the question, what's the difference between lament and complaining? Lament confesses 
the pain, but trusts God for who he is and recalls God's character, whereas complaining seeks to blaspheme God's character and assume God's motives as being evil. You know, expressing a complaint to God does not mean a lack of trust. When you're crying out and saying, Lord, where are you? I don't understand. This is, I'm, I'm just struggling. Expressing a complaint does not mean it's a lack of trust, nor does trust make complaint unnecessary. You hear that? In other words, you know, oh, I'm just going to just trust God. And you don't complain, and you don't, you're not honest with yourself or with anyone else. I'm fine. I'm doing okay. You know, everything's good. But you know life is falling apart. And we play that game of, yeah, it's good. We're good. We're good. You know, yeah, I, mean, I can manage. I can do it. That's not what David does here. And that, nor should we be doing that. So David provides four important it's really three, but I noted four important Godward, worship-filled responses. And the first one, David notes there, after that, but I will trust in your steadfast love. I have trusted in your steadfast love. It, it's, a, it's a decision there, Godward. I'm going to trust you, but I will trust. No matter, things are just awful but I will trust you. David declares that his dependency is upon God's covenant. That means his steadfast love. That word steadfast love is the word, Hebrew word hesed. And it's, 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 a, it's a special word to describe a special relationship that God has with his people. We often it's translated grace or mercy. I think of Psalm 23, surely goodness and hesed. Mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Well, David's confidence is set upon trusting on God's character. In other words, you know, this trust is an active patience. When David is crying out to God, he's confessing his lack of understanding and making his request, he's seeking God's help and recommitting his heart to God. And they all reflect this active patience. Once again, I made mention about this author, Mark Vogrop, who um, the deacons read a book uh, from him. And, and he notes something very keenly. He notes that lament provides a pathway and a language that allow people not only to deal with the reality of their pain, but also to be refocused on the trustworthiness of God. Close quote. As a pastor, and I say this to you, as a pastor, it is so encouraging to know that many of you who come week after week Knowing that your affliction is real. It has not gone away. But you come to express worship to the only God who understands and will deliver you from these afflictions. Thank you for your encouragement. 
of walking in trust of God's character. That's so, and I say that on behalf of the elders, is that it's meaningful when you, when we gather, knowing you're, you're coming here, you may not feel like, I don't want to come to church. I don't want to see anyone. I'm not in that place. But you come trusting, active patience, saying, I'm afflicted. Why, Lord? But I'm going to trust you because you are, one, worthy of praise. So David responds, like I said, I will trust in your steadfast love, the second God word focuses, I will, I shall rejoice. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will rejoice. It's a decision there. The word rejoice means an exceeding joy. And when David says my heart, he, it represents my total being, all that I believe and love. I choose to rejoice. I choose to be glad. Because there's an eternal perspective. There's salvation. Not because I'm feeling it. Okay? But, I, but I'm choosing to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because my eternal destiny is secure from the hellbound world of sin and sadness. You know, one thing to note is that David's rejoicing is upon God's salvation his deliverance of his people, not the defeat of God's enemies. And I, that, that was a, something just really struck me that we don't rejoice. And I think of Proverbs 24, 17 that says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. See, I'm not gonna rejoice because I see my enemies or someone who's getting on my case and rejoice in their downfall. No, I rejoice in God's favor upon me. I look to him and him alone. Not only is there, I will trust in your steadfast love, I will rejoice or I shall rejoice, but the third God word focuses, I will sing to the Lord. Singing is one of the means to lift our hearts above the rising waters of lament and affliction. And it is a personal pathway to praise. Remember, the Psalms are songs of worship. They're recalling God's character. A few weeks ago, I appreciated our brother David Martinson leading the Sunday evening hymn sing and singing songs in minor keys. He said, not every tune is upbeat. We often sing songs of contemplation, anxieties, and fear in order that we may remind ourselves that God has truly brought forth hope for he who has promised is faithful. You know, the decision to lift your voice to praise is such an important means of grace. And it, you are the recipient. If you are able, under your afflictions, to sing Praises to God. Recognize that as part of God's gift upon you. How do I know that? Because David writes there in Psalm 40. He notes, he tells us that I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. 
He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my heart, a song of praise to my God or to our God. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. One writer stated it well, quote, Lament is supplication. It is the means by which suffering comes before the one who can take it away. Lamentation is turned into praise not only by the experience of deliverance, but also by the expectation of deliverance. Close quote. When, when you think of Paul and Silas, when you read the New Testament, you read there in Acts 16, 25, Paul and Silas being there in prison, they sang in prison, and it shook their world, literally. When we sing corporately or with one another or with one voice of declaring our unity, we're, we are declaring our unity as well as preaching the gospel. And so when we sing songs of assurance such as, It is well with my soul or Christ the sure and steady anchor, I like to think that we are storing up provisions for the oncoming storms of life. I said a few weeks ago that just when you visit those who are near the end of their life, who've walked with the Lord for a long time, and you come along, sing with them, sing some of these songs of the faith, of hymns, they may not be able to articulate to you how they're doing or tell you what they're feeling, but you sing along with them and they can mouth the words. And I think of that, that when you sing, sing these, to, because they're, you're kind of storing up some important truths and reminders because those storms and afflictions will come. And so I trust that you will do so, that these songs are not just, we, we don't just pick them willy-nilly here. We, we just, we, we have intentionality of wanting you to, to recall, remember, because what's at stake is God's character, his name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, the precedence of singing has gone on for thousands of years, and it will continue for all eternity. You read from the time of Moses and the people of Israel singing after the destruction of the Egyptians. You find them there in Genesis 15, verse 1, all the way to the future in Revelation chapter 15, verse 3, that they sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great, amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. You see, singing has its purpose. We don't just do it to entertain. We do it because we are declaring his truth corporately as well as personally. I will sing to the Lord. The fourth God word focus I say forth, um, in terms of verbs, it's, I, you know, I will trust, I shall rejoice, I will sing. But I, I put there, I will recall God's steadfast love toward me. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. When I recall God's steadfast love, it's recalling his faithfulness personally. You see, promises don't end the pain, but they give it purpose. In all this time of trial, I will trust 
I will trust in the one who keeps me trusting. I think of the prophet Jeremiah. His words when he saw his nation fall apart before his eyes. And he saw the people of God suffering horrifically. You find there both in, you read in Jeremiah and in Lamentations, but certainly in Lamentations 3, he he says to God, remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall. This is found in Lamentations 3.19. My soul continually remembers it and it is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You see, for all of us in this room, we have and will experience afflictions that can tempt us to lament and cry out, I don't like what I'm experiencing. Life is difficult and it's, it's just so difficult to bear. But the question is, whom will you cry out? For many in our culture, we've elevated self-reliance and self-sufficiency to a form of independence that isolates us from communion with God and with ones in our community. We often internalize our despairing thoughts that leads to self-destruction. I think of these lyrics of this hymn, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You know, we're not alone. We have community, but we have the God who understands. How do I know that? Because the scriptures declare so. I'm mindful of Paul's words in Romans 8, and it's one passage, you, uh, Romans 8, I know somebody who's memorizing the uh, Romans 8, and I say, go for it. But Romans 8.26 reminds us that likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The author Michael Mark Rogop says that when suffering, when suffering, the prayer of lament is, is God's means of providing a language for loss, a solution for silence, a category for complaints, a framework for feelings, a process for our pain, a way to worship. Martin Luther, the famous theologian, once wrote, affliction is the Christian's theologian. I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. You see, only the child of God can lament and still have true hope because one, they have access to God who hears and sees the pain and affliction. Two, they have a God who sympathizes with their weakness 
And third, they have a God who will answer because of his steadfast commitment for all eternity. You know, one of the amazing reasons why we as followers of Christ can turn weeping into worship is because the God we worship not only knows our affliction, he experienced it personally. No other religion has this assurance because they do not have a relationship with the one who paid the penalty of sin, who conquered the final enemy of death by being raised from the dead and currently intercedes for us by his spirit. Spurgeon, who I mentioned before, who suffered many afflictions and heavy criticism that deeply wounded him, once wrote, quote, when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. When providences are dark, it is difficult to read them. It is the word that tells us how to view them. Close quote. My appeal to you, for those of you who don't know this God, may you seek this God who understands who sent his son in order to deliver us from eternal torment and affliction. And he will one day return to take us to our eternal home. Know this one. His name is Jesus. Let me close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you are loving and kind, Father. May you cause your people to meditate upon your word that reminds that through your son, we have a friend who's closer than a brother, one who sympathizes with our weaknesses, the one who comforts the brokenhearted. Thank you. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.